NWCI Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Addison Combs, and I'm sitting here with uh, Brandon Bell, scaffold erector instructor and uh, scheduler for all of NWCI. How's it going, Brandon? Doing good, man. Doing good. Bright and early. 6 o'clock. 6.30, I guess. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a bit about your history. You started as a scaffold erector right after high school, right? Yep. I uh, pretty much got into the trade right out of high school. Um had a buddy that started that was actually building scaffold and I was actually working at Lowe's yeah. in a dead end job. I just dropped out of college. Um, I couldn't do that. Didn't really enjoy that either. So I dropped out. I was kinda in between jobs and my buddy was actually building scaffold and he asked me if I wanted to come and do it. And so I had no idea what it was and said, Sure, why not? So started building scaffold, uh Pretty much the following, I don't know, probably a little bit longer than probably four or five weeks after that and started building scaffold and been doing it pretty much ever since. Yeah, so you just jumped right in and never looked back? Never looked back. I don't know. I found I found it to be kind of easy at the same time hard. Um, so I just kind of stayed with it. I grew up in a family of construction workers. They were dirt workers. Yeah. Uh, running excavation machinery and things like that. And my dad was a carpenter and I enjoyed the carpentry side of it more. Um, so I just kind of veered to the right instead of to the left with uh, the dirt working. So I just enjoyed construction. It yeah, was, it was fun. It was hot, heavy, and hard. Definitely. So yeah, uh, have you ever worked with any any odd scaffolding? Anything that like isn't standard? You wouldn't see on a normal uh, construction site nowadays. Um, for no, not really. No. Uh, I've read online that sometimes in Hong Kong they do uh, bamboo scaffolding still. Yeah, I'm a little too heavy for that. I think. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I watch those same things on YouTube. Yeah. You guys building, you know, bamboo scaffold. I guess it's twice as strong as steel and yada yada. But uh, I definitely have not built any bamboo scaffold. Uh, anything odd and weird? Um, I don't know. I think on the last project. Well, because if you look at if you look at scaffold, it's just the temporary elevated work platform. So, um, something that's kind of unique that we did is on the last project I was on before I was an instructor, we actually built wood platforms in the pipe rack using all wood material to to gain access to all the piping. Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of weird in the sense that this for me as a scaffold erector, that was our first time kind of doing that concept of building these large area platforms that access miles and miles of piping all from using wood and plywood and, and not having to usually build your traditional style of metal scaffold tube and clamp and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that was kind of new and interesting. There was over like 500,000 square feet of plywood that we installed on that project. Wow. So yeah, that was kind of different can can base to your, uh, base to your conventional style scaffold right. and access. And that's that's a an interesting point because you said it's um it's like a temporary structure, but at the same time it's really grand and it, it has all these like a, how many components do you think it went into that? Oh, and into that, I mean that was just six by six timber and yeah. and plywood, so that was a real simple component. And right. we did a we did a, a manpower estimate on using that kind of a system, and we were at like three dollars a square foot, where traditional wow. scaffold was like seventeen dollars a square foot. Yeah. So, for the project we were on, we estimated that way. We took it to execution, and it worked for the most part. It worked. I mean, looking back at it, we could probably change some things, but uh, for the most part, we got the concept because uh, uh, the concept done because the the project was huge. It's a was like a three point two billion dollar job, 
uh, in Maryland, mm-hmm. and we had over like 2,200 craft people, you know, working around each other on a really small site. So we had to find ways to make little cities up in the pipe racks. Yeah. To do the post weld heat treat, to do the paint, to do the guides, the shoes, the anchors, you know, all the yeah. welding and and insulation afterwards, uh-huh. and then commissioning and. So it was a way to, to get people stacked on top of each other without working over the top of each other. Right. So right. So what's uh, either in person or something you've seen on the internet or uh, something like that, you, what's the biggest, most grand uh, scaffold system you've seen? So, I mean, all, all scaffolds pretty much the same. I think uh, I have two that kind of pops out in my head. So yeah. I was actually, I was on the East Coast when the Capitol building um, had all that scaffold around it, uh-huh. uh, and that's a pretty intricate one. Not only is it a national monument, but also it's a sphere. And uh, I've built one sphere before, and those ones are really difficult because as you start to come into that concave of the circle in the top, the sphere on the top, nothing usually touches it. Yeah. So all that stuff is, uh, all that scaffold is like supported off of each other from pretty much the equator of that sphere. And yeah. from there it steps in and nothing usually touches the sphere afterwards. So that's pretty cool. Um, but one of the cool things I got to see is actually here living in Washington when they did the Space Needle, uh-huh. uh, Safeway scaffold out of Seattle, they built a quick deck um, around the Space Needle and they built these platforms down low, uh, hooked up a bunch of motors and cables um, to the bottom of the Space Needle and then got to run it up whatever the 500 feet it is up yeah. in the air. Uh, and it was kind of cool. They did it at night. There's great videos online that show that whole process getting built and when Space Needle is iconic for Washington State. Yep. But also just to see that almost spaceship looking access platform flying through the air at night with all these lights underneath it kind yeah. of was a, kind of a cool moment for me to see how access can be done in yeah. a whole bunch of different ways. So almost makes it look like a like a rocket. Dude, about, it was about just, to take off or something. It looked like yeah. a, it looked like another spaceship coming up to to land right underneath the, the space needle. So yeah, and that was all for that glass floor that they put in, which is uh, I don't know. It was kind of cool to see. See, I had a bunch of apprentices working on that project, so I got a, a lot of behind the scenes photos. Uh-huh. Plus, getting to see it online, so it was just kind of cool to have apprentices that have worked on that get to talk to me about it, and I get to nerd out with them and of how it got built and all those things, and and then see something that's going to be like a staple for Washington state. That's, that's definitely changed the scenery totally. from what I remember the space needle as a kid going up and, you know, to the observation tower. Now you can go to the observation tower and look beneath your feet. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And no, I'm definitely, I, I didn't even know you worked on that. I've heard people talk about it. Well, just walking around. Well, I've never worked on it. I I've only, you I've only, saw it? I, yeah, I just okay. seen it. I didn't get to work on it. No, Got I just, it. I, like I said, I seen the videos online and then I got a bunch of behind the scene photos. Yeah. When guys, uh, yeah, guys that I worked on that project. Right. PCI and Safeway. I had apprentices that did both. Oh, cool. It wasn't just Safeway. PCI did a lot of scaffold on there too. So Awesome. It's pretty cool to see. Yeah. I guess on the on the other end, have you ever seen any scaffolding fail? Uh personally no. Um again another internet photo. I seen a um uh when I well actually not when I was there, but I seen a video come out of Houston, Texas, uh that had a big long stage along the side of a building. And just so happened, like a tourist was videotaping Minute Maid Field and heard a crash and he turned around and he caught like the tail end of probably this four foot wide, at least a hundred foot long 
probably 50 feet tall, just start come crashing down off the off the building. It looked kind of like a domino effect, yeah. how, where it started and then just slowly started to pull off the building and crushing underneath its own weight. So that's about the only failure that I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and you have to know what caused that? No, I don't. But I mean, I can stipulate. Uh, they were doing masonry work, so I'm assuming that it was overloaded. Usually, masoners put too much stuff on there. It's like, you know, for, as a user, they always kind of overdo the uh, uh, how much block they need to put on the scaffold. And I can only assume after that that the ties are insufficient for what they were doing. Yeah. And then the third stipulation, it usually takes something, you know, take something, some outside force to start that. So I, I imagine, right, this is all stipulation, I imagine like a forklift or something buckled a leg or caught a leg or a truck backed into yeah. the leg and with extra load on it, with not enough ties on it, that's what probably caused that effect of, that domino effect of, to bring that whole thing down. Nobody got hurt, so it's the reason why I like to talk about it too. Yeah, that's using, good. Using our class for, for discussion points of why we build things safe and why we don't overload stuff. And, you know, why we, we make sure our users who use our scaffolds that we build don't do that. So, um, but yeah, somebody got injured, but not killed. So that's, that's always the better part of the story. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then, uh, we'll come back and talk a bit about, uh, scheduling and instructing. Nice. The weekend of the 13th to 15th of September is a busy one for continuing education courses. Take advantage. Friday through Sunday in Spokane. There will be a best practices in healthcare course. In Mount Vernon, there will be a Procore 2 class on Friday the 13th, and a total station 2 class will be held on Friday and Saturday. In Renton, transit and level will be held on Friday and Saturday, and a first aid CPR class will be held on Saturday. At the Kent Training Center, there is a construction fall protection class on Saturday the 14th. Finally, in Yakima, there will be an industrial and rough terrain forklift class on Saturday the 14th and Sunday the 15th. Looking for welding labs? You can find them in Kent and Mount Vernon on the 14th of September. Browse these courses and register to attend. Just log in at nwci.org and click on the Courses tab. All right, welcome back. We're uh, talking with Brandon Bell. Um, so you are the scheduler for all of NWCI, right? I, I do schedule yeah. all the apprentices at NWCI. So, and so I'm sorry if you don't agree with what happened. <laughs> It's not my fault, though. I promise. So I guess uh, for the apprentices out there, maybe they don't agree. Maybe they love the, the the classes they get scheduled. Take us into the into the back end. What what goes into that? So, um, I took over scheduling here at NWCI close to two and a half years ago, um, and the approach that was done before by a great guy, um, he kind of took care of it all. Uh, Tom Webb, he's a great dude. I knew him from Eastern Washington, and uh, I took it over for him because he went on to better endeavors. Um, so when I got, when I took the realm, uh, of, of scheduling, I, I tried some new concepts. So before schedulers just used to do whatever he needed to do to, in order to make the schedule work. Um, I tried a different approach. What I did is I met with the coordinators and we created a rough draft of instructors and what classes were needed, uh, based on numbers. Really. Um, we have a system called tracker that, uh, uh, populates that there's 300 people in Renton that need a concrete one class. So we divide that by how many people we want to put in that class. We come up with the quantity of classes and then we start 
strategically placing them in a week that makes sense for that training center. You know, there's training centers that have um, confines to like, they can't run a wood framing class and a concrete one class because it's too tight in the shop and there's safety issues. So we pretty much just put a puzzle together through Excel of a rough draft of what, what class is. It's pretty much like the game of Clue, really. Like we had Greg Vanderworth in Concrete One on week 14 uh, in room 224 or something. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it's really like a game of Clue, but we get a lot of buy-in from the, the coordinators who get to you know manage their training center. Uh, they get to have skin in the game. Um, after we, you know, we do our scheduling exercise, our rough draft exercise for about a week. Uh, then the following week, I just start pushing buttons. That's, I mean, as a scheduler, that's all you kind of do is once that, once that leg works done up front, yeah. then it just turns into me pushing buttons, listening to music, just trying to crush it to try to get it done in the next week. Yeah. So, so what, what causes the most conflicts there? You, you mentioned you're playing clue, which, which ones do you get stuck on? The the hardest the hardest things to do is 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 probably hmm, hardest thing to do is well always at the very end because you're trying to find people classes because there's always onesies twosies at the end so ninety percent of the, the schedule gets built really quickly the last ten percent takes just as long as the first ninety percent yeah so there's always that issue so that takes time and you're trying to find people and then. Um, you know, you're really going down to the wire of saying, okay, maybe I could put another class here because there's a room open and it'll make these students go here. DuPont has, has added a different, uh, uh, approach, the new DuPont training center, but at the same time has opened up classrooms. Cause that's how I look at it. I just look at it as classrooms and classroom numbers. Like, yep. you know, Mount Vernon has four, Kent has seven, DuPont has five. And then we just kind of dice it up how we feel is needed in order to put those people there. Uh, so that's always a, an issue. Um, other issues, not really issues, but other um, concepts is that you're just, you're, you're scheduling people. And so uh, the, the level of scheduling people is very dynamic, right? Yeah. I mean, you have instructors who have uh, additional training that they need to take. They have instructors that have time off and then certain instructors are, are better suited to teach this class. I mean, every instructor can teach every class we have here, but uh, they are definitely have their, their strengths of, of the classes that they super excel out. So we want to make sure the student gets the best instructor, yeah. um, you know, for that class, right? And so it's a really dynamic feature of trying to have all these moving parts. And, and since you're scheduling people, they're, they're already dynamic. So it makes scheduling a little bit, little bit more different than what I'm used to scheduling. Uh, cause usually it's a hard quantity and then you have a timeline that you're trying to schedule to and, and yeah, and I, and I, I kind of do some tracking things where I notice that people at our training center, I like to see issues that come up with them and why they might be in certain ways. And the number one thing that always comes up of why people get scheduled weird, like maybe at the beginning of one quarter and then they're at, sorry, they're at the end of one quarter, but then the beginning of the next. So they mm -hmm. feel like they've been to school for two weeks in a row. Yeah. A lot of that issue is just based on them and their, maybe their contractors having to reschedule them. Yeah. Or maybe they have a vacation that, you know, the student has a vacation and so they have to withdraw from a class and then they get put into the next one based in their sequence because we right. try to keep them in their years, right? We don't want a year one person taking a rigging class, which is a year four class. Yeah. And so you're trying to find a class that best suits them inside their time frame, which usually means they might potentially go back to back weeks. 
you know, over our weekend between, uh-huh. just because, you know, because of that weird dynamic. So it's kind of interesting to see, and and I noticed that you can't ever put your thumb on it. Right. Like once you get a pattern, the pattern changes the next time. Yeah. So you just got to be really fluid. Um, you know, and that's what being a carpenter is all about, anyways. Just being fluid and 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 trying to just get your job done no matter yeah. what. So. Yeah. So you mentioned the uh, the Dupont building, and we've been talking a lot about that. We got the grand opening coming up uh, October eighteenth. Exciting. Yeah. Um. But we've also got a new building uh, in the works up in the North Pe- North Puget Sound, up in Burlington. Um. And I know you've been uh, working over there. What What do we got uh, going on in the North Puget Sound building up in Burlington? So we bought a building in in uh, North Puget Sound. That's obviously in Burlington, like you said. Yeah. Um. Pretty much what we did was uh, we decided to start running the scaffold classes there. Greg Brady, our my coordinator, is like, "What do you think about running scaffold classes over there?" I was like, "Let's do it, right?" Yeah. Um, so it's really rough right now. I mean, it's a huge shop area and it's really nice uh, for that. For that, but uh, the TI work is going to start here pretty soon. They're still awarding contractors and blah blah blah, mm-hmm. doing all that process, which takes time. Um, so we're, we're kind of, uh, I, I quote unquote squatting in a room right now. Um, it's a little rough of a room, yeah. but it's a, it's, it's still a good room. It's got all the space we need. It's got all the power we need. You got a TV chairs and a whole nine yards to make a good classroom. Uh, and then for about a week we sat there, me and the, uh, Mount Vernon crew, we just ran scaffold gear over there every day for a whole week. Um, set up a little yard and we started running classes over there. So it's kind of been exciting. I get to be there uh, running scaffold classes and kind of watching contractors come in. Like we just did the electrical as built the other day. So electrical contractors just mapping out this giant building. The building's 200 by 500 feet long. I mean, we're going to occupy the front space and I don't know those measurements, but uh, the whole building, I mean, it's a huge building. There's other leasey agreements that we're honoring yeah. and we'll continue to honor from what I hear, right, it's you know above my pay scale, but um, we're you know we're gonna agree to honor those people, so we have to kind of work with them too, uh, and let them know that we have contractors coming around and doing all this electrical mapping and and uh, things like that. So it's been fun for that. I mean, definitely been fun for that. And Eric Torset, he does some of our uh, uh, advanced blueprint reading there. He does the goes there, sets up the trembles, and they use that big huge shop space to to lay out all the things for um for that class so that's another class that's being run there but pretty much it's just apprenticeship scaffold classes there that's it yeah so we're we're just going to offer the scaffold classes there for now and then we're going to continue um offering those as the contractors come in and finish the building yep and then after that kind of transition all of the classes from the current mount vernon building over to burlington yep exactly right exactly right you, you hit the nail awesome the head right there all right we're going to take another quick break and then i'll ask brandon a few more questions the date for the DuPont Training Center grand opening is set. Mark your calendars for October 18th. Come by to tour the building, enjoy light refreshments, and talk with NWCI staff about how they utilize the training center. October 18th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Find more details in RSVP on our Facebook page. All right, and we're back. We're going to talk to Brandon here about some technology and then ask a few personal questions. Um, so I guess jumping into technology, what uh, in the in the scaffold scaffolding field what what new technology uh is coming out I, as a layman I, i'm not really i'm not really uh knowledgeable on that so what, what what's going on in scaffolding as far as technology goes uh technology wise there's uh there's a new program out called uh Avantis scaffold designer 
which is pretty much um, pretty much a program that a contractor or somebody could buy that uh, designs the scaffold for you. So you tell it a length, a width, and a height, and it designs it for you. It does it in like a DWG file, uh, and it, it comes out with like a photo, mm -hmm. um, a 3D rendering to give the you know the person who's building it an idea what it is, but also comes out with a load list. So it takes away the whole drawing on a piece of paper of what you think you're going to build and then creating that load list. You know, I need a yeah. hundred of these, 10 of these it takes, it cuts down all that time and it kind of pukes out all this information for you that you can use to, you know, build your rack and deliver it to the job and, and kind of build like that. So, so what's the input into that input there is like, it's super simple. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, probably about three hours of training max. Yeah. Um, and if you can run a PC like Windows and navigate files, yeah, I mean it's that simple. It's like a click and drag, click and drag and add, and then you can minus things, add things. So um, is it a, is a three D modeling it for is scaffolding? Th it's three D modeling for scaffolding. And so do you put in a different three D modeling of like the building you want to put the scaffolding around, or so how does that work? You can overlay. You can overlay like you know your PDF drawings. Like if you got a plot plan, okay. you can you can lay them down on the floor. Yeah. Scale it to size, and then actually have a program on there that would just automatically populate a scaffold around that building. Okay. You just tell it how high you want it to be, and yeah. then you kind of modify it from there, critique it, and it'll puke you out anything you need. You can also like draw solid shapes in there so you could draw a pipe rack you could yeah. draw a, a a dam or whatever you wanted to draw that would probably take a little bit more time a right. little bit more effort a little bit more skill to draw that and then you can build scaffold to that uh they have a bunch of crazy stuff with that too and, and uh, there's probably some value in it i haven't seen it where i need it yet but uh they have like a whole virtual reality thing that you can draw your scaffold and then put out like a QR reader at the job site and then look through some goggles and you'll see the scaffold that and how it's going to look. So That's pretty cool. It is really cool. I, I, like I said, uh, I'm pretty good friends with the Avantas guys and, and they find value in it. Me, not so much yet. It is really cool to have. Yeah. And I'm sure if one person needs it, it's probably paid for itself then. You know what I mean? Yeah. If one project finds a use for it, then... Then that's all it needs in order to for it to be a you know like a good program. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, totally. There's not they you know all these programs definitely are not like one size fits all. Like you know different things and different avenues of it is probably uh, will work for some and not for others. Yeah, and then switching over to the classroom side, what what education technology are you using most in the class, and what do you find most useful? Uh, we just for us we're mainly just using a lot of iPads. You yeah, know, we're putting iPads in in front of students early making sure that they know how to navigate them. Uh, we use Procore. I, I mean, I was using PlanGrid a lot for a lot of our drawings, and now we kind of switched to Procore. Uh, but we just, I mean, where I think with more people that just know how to run an iPhone or a smartphone at that, uh, it just kind of, it just kind of makes sense. You know, I was doing a lot of our tests through I, the iPad. Mm -hmm. um, I found some hiccups in there, so I got to critique those. Um, but just kind of get an iPad in their, in their hand and gets them excited. At the same time, you, it puts more pressure on the instructor because now you've really got to watch a student to make sure he or she is not doing something dumb on a electronic device. As much as you tell people, you still, it's always in the back of your head of like, make sure you know where you're at. 
Like, don't be, you know, you are at a school. Yeah. Everything is tracked on here, so yep. be dumb. They know who, you know. So there's it's kind of some stress yeah. that goes along with that because you don't want to see your student get in trouble. Right. At the same time, you can't hold their hands their whole life too. So right. You know, they're all we're all adults here in this in this trade, and got to make sure people. You know, you hope that people continue to act like an adult. So yeah. the iPads mainly to sum that all up. iPads is the main technology we're using. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, up in this Gadget Valley around my Vernon area, what where could I go to? To get a good bite to eat, what's what's your go-to? So my go-to, I mean, I live on Camano Island, so I live I live about thirty minutes south of where our training center is. Um, but if we're up in the Skagit Valley near the training centers, there's a sushi place that's got a belt, uh, Sakura. Uh, it's a great sushi place. They do high volume sushi, so they always have fresh sushi. Yeah, um, which is really nice. Um, but my favorite bar is definitely going to be the Trainwreck. Trainwreck has a great environment, great people. Yeah. Uh, great food. I mean, they have a ditzy blonde type of beer. That's like a Kolsch that packs like a 7.2 punch. So that's always a great beer to have. Solid. Yeah, it's a really good. And it's out of Birdsview, which is deep in kind of the mountains, like this little tiny brewery on Highway 20. So it's kind of cool that they, they grab a lot of micros from all over the place. But um, it's a really funky little spot right next to a train train uh, uh, train track. So that's why they call it the train wreck. And uh, when the train goes by, they give you like dollar off your beers, and so it's just a great environment, uh, good crowd. Anyone from it's twenty one and over, so it's anyone from twenty one to sixty one. You know, you yeah. get all spectrums of life in there, so it's always a fun place. Awesome. And then uh, finally, what what kind of personal projects have you got going on? Are you working on anything in your free time? Uh, so in my free time, I'm building a. Uh, I, got, I got five acres on Camano, so uh, we. My wife and I, we built a house out there, so that was a big project for a couple years. Um, now we're on to the pole barn, building that. My wife's got horses, and my daughter has the little goats and all that stuff. Yeah. I'm not an animal person, but uh, she's got all that. They love it, so uh, we're building a pole barn for, for them so they can have, you know, put their hay up and do kidding. I don't even know what the word kidding means, but a kidding station, I guess, is for breeding her goats. She has these little tiny... Nigerian dwarfs or something that yeah. my daughter wants to sell and she's a my, my daughter is such an animal lover and and I honestly could do without right yeah but you end up your daughter's an animal lover you gotta you gotta do stuff you gotta be an animal lover yourself yeah exactly yeah. My, my daughter loves it she gets you know she gets a kick out of them she wants to, to breed them and then sell them and my wife grew up on a farm so she likes her horses and yeah and me, I, you know, if there's a cat that I see once every four weeks, I'm happy. Yeah. Right? I mean, so I'm just not an animal person, but they love animals. So right. I'll, I'll at least uh, build all the stuff for them. I will get yep. them what they want because, uh, I mean, animals aren't bad. They're just not my favorite thing. So. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Brandon. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robert Howard, for listening. If you're listening right now, Robert Howard's an instructor here at. Uh, at the Kent Training Center. He's the best pile driver instructor we have. In fact, he's the only pile driver instructor we have. So give a shout out to Robert Howard. And that's it for this episode of the NWCI Podcast. Join us next week. We'll be talking to an instructor out of the Kent Training Center. Until then, remember, measure twice, cut once. The opinions and information expressed in this podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not necessarily reflect the views of NWCI or its partners or affiliates.